from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, social distancing at home in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how COVID-19 is putting the brakes on mobility systems. Earth Day 20 moves into cyberspace. How impact investing is faring in the roller coaster stock market. And in a viral world, the new rules of employee engagement. We're safe at home this week on 350. It's March the 20th, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from her sequestered home in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hi, Joel. I hope you are well. I hope you are well. I am well. Mm-hmm. I am well, thank you. And uh, you, uh, how, how are you doing? You know, it's for me, this is, uh, is not that different from my regular existence. That uh, I, I work at home all the time. But it is very strange to have so many people calling to see how I am or emailing. And now a lot of more people are more interested in, in all the things I use regularly, like Zoom. And so, um, you know, I, I have empathy for, for what everyone else is going through. It is, it's, it's a very weird dynamic working in an office versus at home. And I know Oakland, in, in the Green Biz office in Oakland is extremely extremely uh, collaborative and I, I imagine it's it's very different for you yeah we're uh, we're spending a lot of time on slack and in phone calls but you know in some ways I agree with you it's not all that different uh, you and I have both uh, worked at home uh, for a long long time as, as freelance writers or as entrepreneurs or in any way shape or form and I do that a lot even now in my role at green Biz because I get a lot more done at home and and um, uh, I don't, I'm not as operational in the company thanks to um, my two terrific partners, Pete May and Eric Ferro. So I don't have to be there as much. So it isn't a big change. The big change really is going out for lunch, uh, a lot of meetings outside, or just collaborating, as you were saying, with the open team in the office. So, you know, we're finding our way through it. Um, haven't moved too much into video yet, but uh, video conferencing, but mm-hmm. that's in- inevitable. Mm-hmm. So. You know, we're all muddling through this. I guess I think this is sort of the end of the first work week of this new normal, at least for now. And, um, you know, I I, I can do this. I think for me, one of the concerns is how, when, how and when can I follow up on some of the really important stories that I'm trying to get my arms around? And at what point is it appropriate? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, People are working, but they're working from home. And, and you know, how much do we treat this as a normal, you know, at least from the, on the phone, being able to talk to people and call them up? Um, and how much are people distracted? And how much are people, you know, working from home, but engaged with uh, kids and pets and, you know, trying to get groceries and all of those things? So, yeah, it's a weird time. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll muddle through this. Yeah, and I just, I wish everyone out there in our community the best and keep safe. Yes, and we'll all muddle through this together, but you know, let's muddle into the weekend review.
Well, no surprise here, we're going to start the conversation talking about COVID-19 and uh, a couple of aspects of it, how it works with climate change and uh, piece, I guess, that I wrote this week. I guess I did write this week on um, <laughs> on what <laughs> it's that kind of week. Come on, give me, give me a little slack. Uh, you know, it's looking at this whole thing that we're going through as significant and horrible and challenging and scary as it is, uh, might just be a dress rehearsal for what's coming in a climate changing world. Um, you know, we've been hearing about the rise of infectious diseases for a long time. Um, the Pentagon started talking about it uh, almost 20 years ago, 2003. Um, and there have been lots of uh, other um, experts weighing in on the rise of, of uh, infections and insects uh, bearing uh, diseases. Uh, everything from bubonic plague to anthrax. And um, so it's not that we have to get used to this, but we are getting, uh, one could make the case, a dress rehearsal for uh, certainly the rest of this century. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I'm, I'm going to be, I, we're both very subdued this week. <laughs> we can tell we're just, and, and for obvious reasons, but one thing that makes me optimistic, and I have seen some, some writing about this as well is we can mobilize quickly. We, the collective we, the society, business, government, states all around the country and countries all around the world, we can mobilize quickly. And it proves that if we want, if we have the will, we can find the way. So, you know, obviously I don't want to be Pollyanna because there's a lot of dysfunctional things happening in, in our home country of the United States with, with addressing this, but the energy is there. And it, it gives me hope that if we, when we, I won't say if we, when we get people focused on addressing climate change, that we can, we can solve this. Yeah. And we're, uh, there's been a number of articles about you know, what would happen if we saw climate change as the kind of emergency that we're now experiencing with, with, coronavirus, COVID-19, in terms of bringing people together, getting governments uh, moving very quickly on solutions and seeing climate change as the kind of existential threat that we now are experiencing with the virus. And and yes, we're getting a bit of a dress rehearsal here. Just take supply chains, for example. There was a survey last week from the Institute for Supply Management, which is the big association of supply chain leaders in companies, said that three quarters of U.S. firms report supply chain disruptions due to the virus and related travel and transportation restrictions. And I would be surprised if that number has gone up in the past week. And already more than eight in 10 believe that their organization is uh, experiencing some impact uh, because of COVID-19 disruptions. And again, I, I think 80%, frankly, is low. I think it's going to be uh, higher than that. So a lot of companies are, are adjusting their revenue targets downward uh, around 5.6%, and so, although some as much as 15%. And again, if you're in the restaurant or hospitality or some other businesses, it's probably more like 80 or 90%, or in some cases, 100%. So this is, uh, is going to be disruptive. And um, the question is, ultimately, what will we learn from this? Right. Right. And actually, that kind of brings me to to the other story related to this that, that we wanted to discuss. That was by Katie Fernbacher, our, our transportation writer and analyst. Uh, and she she considers will COVID-19's transport slowdown stick? 
And obviously, the aviation uh, industry is in a world of hurt right now. No one's flying. They can't fly. Um, well, actually, I shouldn't say no one. I, I know someone who got on the plane this week and went to Colorado, but sig- significantly decreased. The U.S. airline industry is already asking for $60 billion bailout. The U.K. industry is asking for like 6 to $9 billion. So there will be huge losses. And it should be intriguing to see as these industries build their recovery plans, what role the clean options will have in this? Um, Will there be more investments in biofuels? Will there be a different approach to how uh, routes are planned? Will will we see as a result of this distancing and, and people becoming used to working at home, will we see much less business travel? So I think in particularly the transportation sector will be facing a very disruptive um, rethink of their business models. You know, I'm not that optimistic. I fear that, um, well, a couple things. One is that the industries that are being disrupted uh, are going to be looking for handouts and using the virus and the economic shutdown resulting from that as an excuse to be made whole when, in fact, they may be in declining industries or declining technologies. And second, that everyone's going to want to get back to normal. And, you know, normal in way too many cases, and probably most cases, is business as usual. And so I'm, I'm mark me down as skeptical that we're going to come out of this and saying, okay, you know, we've gotten through this. Now let's rethink everything. Let's rethink how we get around and transport, transport things. And, you know, because we have an opportunity to to uh, do it differently. I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, it'll happen in some small niches in the economy, but I don't see it happening wholesale. So I am skeptical. Okay. I will, I will tell you where one area where I am skeptical as well is in the public transit area, um, because people might be afraid to get on the, the subway for a long time. And so that might, we might see an increase in usage of, of, you know, obviously single passenger vehicles. Um, will people, you know, will the auto industry, obviously for, for the foreseeable future, will be taking a hit, but will there be an increase in single, single passenger car sales nine months from now or six months from now as people saying, you know what? No, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so yeah, th- this, this transportation sector is, is a conundrum. Yeah. How will we social distance ourselves? back into our own cars. Um, that's an interesting idea. Uh, not idea, but it's an interesting outcome of this. Uh, so yeah, there, there's a lot to figure out here. And, and, and one question here is how do we, pardon the pun, steer people in the direction of sustainability? Are there things we could be doing? Um, are there things that governments can be doing to uh, help come out of this with a, a reboot of our transportation systems? But, you know, let's move over to a different sector that's also experiencing a world of hurt, which is retail. We have a piece by Ben Cruder, the founder and CEO of Diff, that's uh, looking at how retail can be both profitable and sustainable. And um, ever since the advent of e-commerce and brick and mortar and uh, in decline, uh, this has been a question that's been going on for a while. Uh, But now, uh, as we look at tighter regulations and investors pulling out of polluting industries and consumers on companies, uh, calling on companies to make improvements 
where does retail fit into all this? So it's an interesting piece that uh, talks about how both consumers and market trends and supply chain trends are going to start to uh, shake up the retail industry even more than it's already been shaken. Right. It, the, the I just, I just want to point out that this actually particular story was written a couple of weeks ago. I've been going back and forth with the writer. And so it it wasn't he wasn't writing this with the coronavirus in mind. He he is a, a longtime uh, retail entrepreneur, though. His father was an immigrant who created a denim store chain in Canada. And so he's thinking thinks a lot about sustainable consumption and he decries the the habit of retailers and and brands to get people to consume ever more. What I like are some of his specific ideas for how to think about things more sustainably. And he makes a couple of really uh, specific points. One is I found fascinating was simply using technology to get better about matching inventory with, with the consumer buying habits in a particular region. And people have been talking about this for years and it's possible, but for some reason it still doesn't happen. You know, there's always these weird glitches between the website and the mobile app and the store. And there, there could be a lot more attention uh, put on synchronizing all of those systems to make the inventory better match. So number one, less waste, fewer returns and so forth. I, I also liked his idea of more people shipping to stores to pick up their items, um, you know, and, and sort of the the thing about e-commerce. And, and it should be interesting to see what's happening after the next few weeks um, with with all of the shipments that people are, are making to their houses. But, you know, instant gratification is, as we've said before, is not a good thing for transportation emissions. And he has some suggestions for how certain retailers are are encouraging their customers to think a little bit differently, like don't have it delivered to your doorstep, have it delivered to a store. And maybe when you're visiting a particular area, you can pick it up in bulk and, you know, and others can, can also ship there as well. So it's some really creative ideas. Yeah. And the other thing I like is this uh, avoiding the one size fits all approach to stocking stores where retailers are putting the same thing in every store, regardless of what the communities that store serves wants or needs or, or, or likes. And, uh, you know, and this, of course, he doesn't write about this, but this, of course, goes all the way up the supply chain. I learned a number of years ago uh, that someone who's in the uh, parallel supply chain world said that a, a men's shirt manufactured in India for export uh, used, I think it was eight times more water than uh, a shirt used domestically. Why is that? I know you're asking right now. Color matching or dye matching. In other words, getting the color just right so that that blue looks exactly the same on every shirt uh, is takes a lot more water. And uh, and then the question is, well, why do our shirts need to match? In fact, I was thinking you know, that would be a great Patagonia-style ad campaign. Our shirts don't match. Uh, so it's more environmentally responsible. But second of all, um, you're only going to buy one of them. And you, why would you want to look like everybody else? So let's have a little individuality here. It turns out that might be better from a sustainability perspective, too. So a lot that can be done um, uh, on multiple fronts. And uh, I really recommend this piece on how retail can be profitable 
and sustainable. But finally, let's move over to uh, another story from our friends at Ceres about why do large asset managers vote against most climate-related shareholder proposals? And this is uh, something we've been talking about for a while now in, the, in this new world of ESG mainstream on Wall Street, um, is that you've got the Black Rocks and State Streets, Vanguard, three, those are the three uh, biggest index funds that you know, own an average of 20% of, of every company in the, in the S&P 500, which are the 500 largest publicly traded U.S. companies, and I'm sure there's an equivalent in, in the global side. Um, they talk about uh, climate uh, risk. They make commitments. Larry Fink, of course, his famous uh, annual letter. Um, but they're not necessarily voting uh, against management uh, or voting for proposals uh, that support uh, climate action. And that's an interesting state of affairs. And this piece gets into some of the reasons behind that. It does. There are some really good metrics in here, too. For instance, last season, the good news is that every asset manager that they studied did vote for, like FOR, yes, we, we agree, some of these proposals, at least some of them. And then another positive sign was that 39% of the proposals that they looked at were withdrawn because of the pressure um, from some of these asset managers to take action and, 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 a, and a lot of times discussion behind the scenes, less public discussions. Um, the bad news, though, is, is again, that almost all of them voted against something. And I think for me, one of the revelations was, was the reminder that these are what you call, I guess, universal owners, right? They have to, they have a fiduciary duty to the entire portfolio of a fund. So they can make they can make noise about a, a stock and they can, they can encourage uh, a company to be a better citizen um, in terms of efficiency and risk and so forth. But there's, there's you know, I guess the, the argument is that they can't really, they can't go out and sell those shares individually because they're part of an index and, and they can't really uh, make an, an, an individual decision. So they're long-term investors and they got to think about the portfolio. Well, what's going to be really interesting to watch here, Heather, is is how this changes, uh, because we have just even in the past six months uh, entered into a new era of, of climate risk uh, and ESG concerns. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit later in the show with uh, Erica Karp from Cornerstone Capital about sort of what's going on in Wall Street right now with uh, ESG funds and this roller coaster ride we've all been watching the past couple of weeks. But, you know, how much is this going to change? Uh, and, and we're at least theoretically supposed to be seeing the uh, shareholder meetings that uh, coming around again in the spring and so over the next couple of months. Who knows whether those will happen or how they will happen. They may just go online instead of in person. Uh, but, uh, you know, as these trends uh, pick up, as the concerns grow around climate change and as the term climate risk starts to uh, be emitted from the lips of more and more CEOs and, and big-time investors, uh, we'll have to be uh, looking at this carefully to see um, what's changing. And if it's not changing, what do we do about it? Uh, what do investors do? What do activists do? What do individual shareholders with their 401ks and other pension funds do to press companies further uh, and harder to to vote in favor of, of these kinds of things. And, and along that comes the question, 
do we vote against our potentially financial interests if, if let's say, BlackRock or Vanguard says, you know, we think that voting this way is going to uh, be beneficial to the company's returns. Um, and we say, yeah, we like returns, particularly after all we've lost in the past couple of weeks. Uh, you know, maybe we won't be pressing companies to vote in a certain way if, it, if we think it's going to affect that. So yet another fascinating part of this uh, coming out of, of coronavirus, of how will this change things? And, and again, uh, how does uh, the virus stack up against climate change in terms of the need for urgent action? The stock market continued its roller coaster ride this week. We thought it might be a good opportunity to look at the role of impact investing amid financial uncertainty. How are ESG themed funds and stocks faring so far? Joining me now from New York is Erica Karp, founder and CEO of Cornerstone Capital Group. Hey, Erica. Hi, Joel. How are you? I'm doing okay. How, how are you? What's, uh, what's the feel like in New York these days? You know, it's actually surreal. You know, from the standpoint of what we know and what we know that we don't know, um, it's um, it's pretty scary. So I, uh, you know, we're always telling ourselves and our communities, you know, stay safe and stay healthy. Yeah, that's what we're all telling each other and ourselves and neighbors and everybody else. Well, let's get into this, the topic at hand here. Um, uh, ESG has been uh, on this uh, pretty exciting ride the last couple of years, and particularly the last maybe six, eight months. And uh, I guess I want to check in and see how they're doing. I, I did see one report from Bloomberg that said of more than 2,800 ESG-themed funds they track, about 400 were in positive territory for the year before last Friday's uh, stock market rebound. Um, and uh, so, but what are you seeing there in terms of just first of all, how things are doing, and then let's talk about why they're doing what they're doing. Sure. Well, uh, first, I am hearing evidence also uh, that, that uh, strategies that deeply integrate ESG factors uh, do appear to be holding up uh, maybe a little bit better. It's going to be a while until we have really good research on that. But the anecdotal evidence is that and they do appear to be holding up a little better. And it does appear uh, that there's some evidence of uh, lower volatility in this market. And to your first question regarding the acceleration of the uh, interest and, um, uh, and implementation of ESG integration, I think if anything, we're going to see a real acceleration of that interest. And the bottom line is that uh, ESG, and the G is first among equals, but ESG analysis allows you to get a proxy for quality, you know, a proxy for good governance. I would argue a proxy for uh, innovation. Um, and on the latter, I think it's um, the innovation is about the fact that uh, very often ESG funds are about looking for solutions. And so when you're looking for solutions to big problems, you got to have innovation. So that's what I think uh, that this trend in doing this kind of deep analysis uh, should continue and even accelerate. So that always brings up the causation versus correlation question. Are these companies doing better because of their superior ESG, environmental, social, and governance management, or are they having enough profitability that gives them the luxury 
to uh, indulge, as some people would, would think of it, in some of these non-core kinds of functions? Um, see, I think when it comes to you know correlation and causality, um, it, obviously the latter is hard to prove. That said, I really think it's both. Again, in ESG, that governance, um, it is a proxy um, for quality and also for resilience. Right. I mean, that's what you want to see in, you know, stock performance. That's what you want to see in the markets. That's what you want to see in human beings. Right. It's about resilience. And in fact, this is a particularly, you know, interesting market in that. And, you know, I've been in the markets for 30 years. I've never seen anything like this. The speed of the correction. Uh, the speed of the risk off trade. And if we go back to, you know, what, what's going on in the oil markets, the speed of, you know, the, um, the plunge in oil prices, these are pretty much unprecedented. And what we know as it relates to resilience is um, we can bounce back, companies, markets, we can bounce back uh, pretty quickly uh, when it comes to slower corrections, right? But it's the speed of this correction that can overwhelm um, the risk appetite of the market. It's just like this disease. It's the speed of the spikes that are going to cause, you know, overwhelming negative impacts in healthcare. So um, I still believe that, again, well-governed companies are, um, are more resilient. So we don't know whether we're going to be hitting a recession or worse, um, but is there evidence that, uh, and I guess you're suggesting in some ways there is, that uh, high-scoring ESG companies uh, can be more recession-proof? You know, I, I think, uh, I actually think that they, they could. Uh, again, I'm not big on the scoring because I struggle with the data, but fundamentally, um, companies that are sustainable have, you know, have thought of ESG uh, analysis and, and performance not as a, not as a sidecar. It's absolutely core, right? And not only is it core, it is not just about the risk. It is about opportunities. And the fact that these great companies are grabbing opportunities all the time, right, that makes them uh, more able to bounce back quickly when, when markets do, you know, and when business, businesses do. And by the way, I feel, you know, I try not to make economic forecasts, of course, but I feel pretty certain we're going to be um, in a recession if we're not already in one. And a technical recession, you know, remember, it's a number. And the key is going to be how quickly can we get business back to work? To what degree can we protect uh, businesses, you know, and um, and ourselves, most importantly, our communities. So, before I let you go, what what do you want to see from companies right now? Is there anything they can be doing to really demonstrate or burnish their uh, ESG performance and commitments? You know, right now it's about it's all about leadership, um, and to some degree, it, it's about digital leadership. So at a time when we're talking about, you know, telecommuting and distance education and virtual everything, you know, it's going to be key uh, that leaders keep their, uh, their staffs engaged, even if they are working uh, from home. So I think that's kind of one of the most important things that's happening now. And by the way, that goes to culture, which is very hard in the ES and the G 
that S, that culture thing, very hard to um, to measure. But it's times like this uh, that it makes a huge difference uh, for the cohesiveness uh, of a business. Great. Well, we'll uh, keep checking in and seeing what's going on as this develops and as we continue to hurdle into the unknown. Erica Karp is founder and CEO of Cornerstone Capital Group in New York. Erica, thanks so much and stay safe. Thank you, Joel. I'll see you on the other side. With everyone working remotely right now, engaging employees has taken on some new challenges, not to mention those employees who are having trouble coping financially, psychologically, or otherwise. Joining me now from Boston to talk about that is Susan Hunt-Stevens, founder and CEO of WeSpire, an online employee engagement platform focusing on sustainability, well-being, and social impact. Hey, Susan. Hi, Joel. So things are moving pretty quickly now as companies close their offices on relatively short notice and their facilities. And for what is likely to be weeks or even months, what are some of the key challenges companies are facing uh, from employee engagement perspective? Well, obviously, this is unprecedented, at least in my lifetime, of a disruption uh, to you know everyone's lives, um, particularly people who are actively in shutdown mode. And I think first and foremost, most employers are rightfully focused on how do I keep my employees and their families safe and healthy. And the employers play a really uh, big role, uh, we believe, in motivating, inspiring the positive actions out of employees, uh, first and foremost, to pursue healthy habits themselves, things that they should be doing to keep themselves and their families healthy, but also social distancing is a concept, and I'm not sure any of us had heard of eight days ago that now is top of mind, but some people don't understand why it's important or why to do it, and I think employers play a huge role in explaining the importance of social distancing and what you need to do, why you need to do it, what flattening the curve means, and they really, um, I think, Everyone needs to be communicating really proactively with employees to motivate and inspire basically mass behavior change at scale. Well, what about the employee side? What are you finding to be their biggest questions, concerns, and needs? Absolutely. I think it really splits into two, at this point, different types of workers and workforces. There are people whose jobs and livelihoods have already been impacted today, whether it's restaurant shutdowns or travel and transportation you know, who are reeling and are having to sign up for unemployment and find, uh, you know, new ways to try to make an income in an unprecedented time. And I think if you're an employer dealing with that, your primary role is first and foremost empathy, um, because this is really, really hard. Um, It's hard on the the managers and and the leaders as well as the employees. And I think just acknowledging that is key. And then the thing that I'm seeing most is just the attempt by every leader to connect employees to the resources that are being made available, in some cases very rapidly in communities to support them through however long this this takes to get through. Um, So that's the first group. But the second group of employers, you know, is still operating for business just in a really, really different way. Um, So you've got a whole group of people working remote in many ways for the first time and having to learn remote best practices. You also have a lot of employees who are for the first time sharing space during the workday with kids who are at home and are trying to balance the needs of 
getting work done from home with trying to keep kids engaged. And so one of the things our clients have asked us to do is to create a lot of engagement programs that can be delivered digitally to help their employees learn remote best practices, to help them with resources to help keep their kids engaged, whether they're young kids to teens, um, and even things to help educate and inspire them to do the things around social distancing uh, with their parents or neighbors and how to step up. Because I think that's one thing I would just really encourage from everything we know about uncertainty and anxiety is that when people feel like they have a role to play to help solve the problem, it really helps to manage their anxiety and their certainty. So I would encourage every organization that is able to operate virtually to next ask question, what can we do to help those who are struggling and to give their employees opportunities to lend a hand? Well, let's, let's talk about the opportunities in sustainability. Do you see any particular uh, special role for sustainability professionals to play in this moment? Or is it just uh, sort of doing what everyone else needs to be doing right now and, and figuring out how to get through this time? So I think there are many sustainability leaders who have combined roles now, and that's a trend we've seen over the last three to four years, really since the UN SDGs, where they are combination leaders of sustainability as well as social impact, as well as well-being and uh, inclusion. And so I think first and foremost, if you have that kind of kind of role, uh, and we've been on calls with several of our clients who do have that kind of role, you have a huge role to play through social impact um, and, and all the things that you can be doing to harness the collective power of your employees to figure out the best ways to help in the communities that you operate uh, in, in different ways. I think for sustainability leaders who don't have necessarily direct responsibilities for social impact or well-being or some of those areas, um, rolling up your sleeves and lending those teams a hand because they are, um, you know, uh, getting a lot of calls right now. But also, I think many, many people are trying to think through, all right, we're going to get through the next week or two where this is kind of a shock. And then we're, as you said, potentially going to have months of needing to keep people engaged in a, in a really different way. And what we know from all the research that we've done for years is that employees who are engaged in sustainability activities are more likely to be engaged and are more likely to retain at a company. And I do think the 50th anniversary of Earth Month and Earth Day that is coming up um, next month, we just did a webinar to help people understand what you can do to celebrate Earth Month digitally and share some ideas and suggestions about how to do that. And so I think once we get through this first few weeks of, you know, surprise, there is going to be opportunity for sustainability leaders to think about how, you know, in addition to supporting everything you need to do for COVID and everything you need to do for your community, now how can we keep people engaged and motivated and connected and inspired um, as, as we get through, you know, the next four, eight, 12 weeks uh, of what we have in front of us? Well, you sort of answered my last question, but I'm going to ask you it anyway. What's the best case scenario here in terms of not the not the virus and the and the the world uh, reaction to that, but in terms of employee engagement, in terms of what it's possible, what maybe the opportunity is for companies in this moment? Well, I think first and foremost, there's a huge opportunity for companies to just be more human um, and to realize that you know, employees are balancing a whole complex set of issues, you know, around this and supporting people through 
what it means right now to, to have your whole world turned upside down is a huge opportunity for companies to show empathy, to show compassion, and compassionate leaders are the most effective leaders. There's a lot of research out of uh, Harvard Review and Michigan's Positive Business Institute that shows that you know, people who demonstrate compassion during times of crisis have stronger connections with their employees, their companies are more resilient as they go through. So I think there's a huge opportunity for leaders to demonstrate compassion and empathy. And I think that's the first thing they should be doing right now um, in, in any thing. I think the second thing is that, um, you know, for those who are now working digitally uh, and remote, one of the things you hear often from digital and remote employees is they are better able to do a work-life blend. And so a lot of people are getting to practice what a work-life blend is going to look like because it's been forced upon them. And I think this could accelerate, you know, a longer-term embracing by companies of this work-life blend. And I think that's ultimately in the long-term good for employees. I think the challenge is going to be how do we, when we're not together, uh, stay connected and stay inspired and stay motivated. And that's where I think using digital tools is a huge solution to being able to make sure your employees are connected and are inspired and are engaged. Says the woman who produces digital tools. So I'm not surprised to hear you say that, but lots of great <laughs> silver linings here. And we'll, <laughs> we'll look forward to some of those silver linings, uh, hopefully, uh, as we come through this. Susan Hunt-Stevens is founder and CEO of WeSpire. Thanks so much, Susan. Thanks, Joel. Bye-bye. As the world's social norms and gathering practices adjust to fight the coronavirus, climate activists are adjusting to a new reality. For years, many organizations, businesses, scientists, and advocacy groups have been preparing to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Earth Day on April 22nd. But with public gatherings banned or discouraged indefinitely around the world, the movement is taking things far more virtual. This week, the Earth Day Network announced it would postpone its live anniversary activities and shift into high gear to prepare the first digital Earth Day. Joining me now to talk about this evolving strategy is Kathleen Rogers, president of the Earth Day Network. Kathleen, I hope you're well. I hope your family's well. Thank you so much for joining us on Green Biz 350. Thank you so much for having me. So the first, uh, the first question at hand, how did you come to this decision and who was part of that discussion? Well, a, a couple of things. We, we've been watching this since uh, the Wuhan. And because we're a truly global organization, we realized right away that in China and parts of Asia, we would begin to see a curtailment of the activism. Even in China, where we're able to do some activist work, uh, we saw the impacts right away. So it's not as if we didn't anticipate or we anticipated them because we're smarter than anybody else, but we started to see our activities to either be shut down or likely to be shut down in China and applied some of that uh, worldwide. And we are definitely a global organization. The second thing is, while the United States is suffering along with many other countries and the tragedy of, of the coronavirus and its connection to climate change are painfully obvious and to environmental issues, uh, half the world is moving forward. Literally half the world is still moving forward with the activist part of Earth Day. And that's everything from demonstrations and strikes 
uh, town hall meetings, teach-ins on universities, cleanups, major scientific projects that would involve large groups. So for 50% of the world, maybe a little less right now, and that could all change, as I said, they're going ahead. But for the rest of the world, and we have an obligation to support all of our activist groups, and we have way more than a million involved at this point, we had always prepared for a digital Earth Day in the sense that um, we have so many groups in our network that we had to push out materials to them quite early. Everything from banners and downloadable posters to how to do a teach-in and other activities and other materials. So a lot of the groups in our network are just taking those materials and getting them out digitally. And so we're happy that a lot of the activities we have where we had prepared material, materials, we were able to start pushing them out in a really intense way. And that includes everything from how to teach Earth Day curricula in multiple languages to a timeline uh, of the environmental movement worldwide. All of these incredibly important materials for teachers in remote places and even in the U.S. Um, who want to have materials at hand. And so a lot of them will be employing some of these materials for their Earth Day events, which schools were planning worldwide. And so I feel, because the kids are at least theoretically required to participate in online classes in urban areas or where internet's available, we'll still be able to um, provide them with some learning materials. It's not the same thing as having an all school rally or town hall meeting inside a school or having a big teach in on University of Michigan's campus or the more than 500 universities that were planning and participating with large groups of people. But I think the spirit is still um, engaging the leadership at all these schools to reach out to as many people as they possibly can. And through the um, academics, through the heads of um, their universities who are constantly sending people reminders about what they can do um, for classes and will soon be reminding people what they can do for Earth Day. I think uh, we have a couple of major programs. The It's called Earth Challenge 2020, which is a, a global citizen science project that involves applications that are now available in the App Store and, uh, worldwide that encourage um, new uh, people to join the citizen science movement. And those applications are ready for use and people are already downloading them and taking pictures of problems in the neighborhood, mostly because the apps are ready for these two are plastics and air, very high quality apps. It's a partnership with the State Department, Wilson Center, and thousands and thousands of citizen science groups, which allow individuals to go out and take photos, upload their photos, and then they will get an activist pop-up that tells them what they can do. And for the most part, it's communicating with their governments or other activities that were online to begin with. So we've added that citizen science civic engagement, and we've tied those two things together, which is fairly new for the citizen science community. So we're excited about that project, and that was going to run digitally entirely, except that occasionally we're going to have very large groups doing this together, teachers with their students. And that can all happen in September when everybody's back in school. So we do have a wide variety of things to do. As we move to the digital platform and the activism, we're still rolling that out with the thousands of activist groups that were, you know, excited and pent up to do something for Earth Day. And right now it involves uh, the normal kinds of things you would do online, everything from videos, petitions, other kinds of activist 
activities that can be taken, you know, can be used through the internet. So we're evolving as we speak every minute. Uh, but as I said, close to half the world, uh, it's not that they're oblivious, they're preparing, but life has, is pretty much going on as planned. And a lot of the groups we're working with are starting those activities now and anticipating that something could go wrong, which allows us to um, keep them safe and yet allow them to do the activist work right now. You mentioned some activities in September. So the things that have been postponed, have they been already sort of tentatively put on the calendar for the fall? Could you talk about that a little bit? So we have one. um, And keep in mind, we're a big tent. Uh, We are, as we call us, everybody but the green groups. And our mission is to diversify the environmental movement. And so a lot of our activities are not hardcore you know, environmental actions that uh, the strikers take, although we're immensely proud of our relationships with them and the work that they do and often engage in that in ourselves, but we are everybody else. And so we created a series of programs and campaigns that would allow everybody to take the first step into environmentalism, one of which is called the Great Global Cleanup. And we expect to have, even if it's put off A lot of these activities are going on now, but we expect to have at least 300 to 400 million people participating in them worldwide. And so we've moved them to, in the countries that are suffering from the pandemic, we have moved those to World Cleanup Day, which is our major partner anyway. And that's in late September. So while we were doing a two, every year we do uh, a cleanup in April, uh, this year, much, much, much bigger. But World Cleanup Day is a major partner, and so we're going to move a lot of our activities there. We were launching and will launch a campaign called Vote Earth After Earth Day, which is somewhat about communications but also voter registration. There are over 60 countries worldwide that have elections in what we have been calling Earth Year anyway. Um, So it's an important year for bringing people's attention through the uh, voting process Uh, to consider uh, environmental issues when they're voting. And so that campaign, which launches after Earth Day, will move forward. We'll have lots of rallies nationwide, which we were planning anyway, but we're taking a lot of the rallies that we were planned for uh, big universities and moving them to September. At this point, everybody's super excited about doing that. It allows us to be proximate to the election in the U.S., but these are also universities worldwide. Again, we're global and different. And so a lot of our universities will um, have embraced that idea of doing something in September, completely unrelated to voting because it won't be, uh, you know, proximate to the event. Uh, So I expect to see a lot of that activity take place in September. We've moved it there because, you know, now we're seeing projections of this lasting more than a couple months. So we made that decision to uh, do something in September. Six months after Earth Day, we're internally calling it our half birthday. Um, In October, we'll be holding a rally on the mall, and uh, that'll be, you know, close to our U.S. elections, and we'll be holding lots of events in October, uh, which we were planning anyway under the Vote Earth campaign, but we'll take all those, that energy and all those people that are prepped up to do something now, and they seem pretty enthusiastic to do what they can now and then move to October. Mm -hmm. One last question before I let you go. How can the business world Re- recalibrate its Earth Day activities? Uh, what's the call to action for them? How can they help with the digital movement? And, and really, how can they, they, they really engage with you right now as we, we shift these activities? 
I mean, companies are so, they know that. Every corporation in the world is a major player uh, in the campaign to deal with climate change. And they have enormous uh, leverage with governments because they are so powerful. And I'm not just talking about big companies. I'm talking about small as well. So we've always urged them around Earth Day and year round to step it up and make commitments. But I think they're hurting just like we are, obviously. And so we're seeing a lot of interest from companies that have been contacting us and saying, okay, we can't do the employee engagement. What do you want us to do? So we've asked them where that's their only interest, move it to September and join us in this fall birthday, birthday, half birthday. Uh, But for others, we know they're on the verge of making commitments around environmental issues, whether it's in moving away from plastics or committing to phase outs of other kinds of greenhouse gases or greening their facilities or being stronger and more vocal and more straightforward with consumers about what they want them to do and why they should do it with that company. And so I think you'll see lots of companies jumping in to help and to do something uh, that's a combination of additional commitments as well as encouraging their um, communities of employees and others to take part in some of these virtual activities I've mentioned online. So we have lots of companies that will have their employees using the Earth Challenge 2020 app, uh, but I also see a lot of cleanups and things that companies were going to support, uh, agree to support them in September. Uh, but again, it's exerting pressures. It's talking frankly to their consumers and being very engaged in developing a solution to climate change and other environmental problems. They must recognize now those that were on the sidelines that were all susceptible to uh, these kinds of global disruptions. And I think they are cognizant of and more interested now than ever before in coming up with a big global con- uh, solution that includes the people who benefit from their services or products. Thank you so much for joining us here. Thank you for having me. We're, uh, I'm going to go out and use the app right now because I'm a little stir crazy. So uh, thanks for having me and uh, look forward to working with you again. This is Katie Fehrenbacher, senior writer covering transportation for GreenBiz. This week is a really hard week for all of us. It's a particularly hard time for various industries that make up the transportation sector. Like the rest of the auto industry, electric vehicles are expected to be hit by COVID-19 concerns and the accompanying recession. But sectors that are pushed by government mandates and incentives will keep on moving, like electric buses. School districts in states with aggressive incentives like California are beginning to adopt electric buses made by companies like the Alliant Electric Company and Daimler's Thomas Built Buses. Last month, I chatted with Tim Shannon. He's the director of transportation for Twin Rivers Unified School District, a school district with over 25,000 students, many of them from disadvantaged communities around the Sacramento area in Northern California. Twin Rivers was the first district in the U.S. to start deploying electric buses three years ago, and today has 35 electric buses operating with plans to convert the entire 91 daily operating bus fleet to electric within the next few years. Shannon had this to say about the benefits of electric buses. You know, once we we received the buses and then really the realization came to light that they were much more efficient to use. Uh, much more economically viable, 
um, I'll just give you some some numbers. Currently, we um, they are 80% um, less expensive to run for fuel. They are um, about 60% plus less expensive for maintenance, and we don't have any inventory of parts except for light bulbs. Beyond the cost benefits of electric school buses, these buses can also do other nifty things like provide on-demand battery storage for the local utility. It's a technology called vehicle-to-grid. School buses are only used during certain times of the day, so when the buses are plugged in, a utility can pay the school district to have a reliable source of energy storage. It's early days for this technology, but Twin Rivers is already piloting the tech with Utility Sacramento Municipal Utility District, or SMUD. So... When we were awarded the, the CEC buses on the, for the California Energy Commission, one of the things that the buses had to have or be capable of was vehicle to grid. So what we did is we've been working with SMUD, and they're really interested. We're going to work on a level two V2G platform, and we're tying it in with the new VM chargers. And so we're going to look at all the parameters about how to use charge management with that, um, how to measure it, how to, what kind of monetary compensations the school district will get for allowing it, you know, what, what if any degradation there will be on the batteries, all, all of that. At the end of the day, in addition to the cool technology, electric buses are about lowering air pollution for kids and carbon emissions for the planet. Shannon explained that here. Well, you know, what's really driving the program and, and all the benefits and, and the reason that I don't talk about uh, it a whole lot and we know it's happening is the, the global warming um, topic. Um, it becomes a very contentious topic. So what we do is we we push, we know that everything we do in green for clean air, for clean air for kids and community, we have this great unintended consequences is that we're making a great impact on reducing greenhouse gas. Um, for, for us as a district, it, it, it does a lot. Uh, like one of the board members said last night at a board meeting that um, our green bus program, what it's doing is it's taking an, an area that is a highly dense area, dense populated area, and we're transporting a lot of kids, and we're in a lot of community, a lot of part of the community that's that is in the disadvantaged community, and you know has a high rate of pollution. We're lowering all that um, for the community. We're making it um, eco-friendly where they live or at least making an impact on it. Well, before we sign off for this episode, we wanted to leave you with a new song recorded over the past weekend by the Sea Stars, a group of women all working on environmental and social progress, who recorded this tune titled Stay at Home remotely from their individual homes, appropriately. The Sea Stars include Sandra Kwok, Amanda Joy Ravenhill, Alana Lipset, and our very own Shauna Rappaport, Verge Executive Director. You can learn more about them at thecstars.org. Don't want to be a vector with the virus at this stage. Don't want to be transmission for people of old age. If you're feeling any symptoms, just stay at home and observe. Do everything you can. To flatten the curve, a plague it's true, but let's make it through. 
that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish six every week. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to find out more about them. And as always, we love to hear from you, particularly now that you're sequestered at home. Send us an email. What's going on for you at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay healthy and safe, and thanks so much for tuning in. I'm gone.